Welcome. Uh, we're very lucky indeed to have Alan Hollinghurst here uh, for the second in this series of the Winery Life Writing Lectures, so-called because the philanthropist Harry Winereeb created the Dorset Foundation, which funds the Oxford Centre for Life Writing at Wolfson College. I'm very pleased to see all of you here, including the students who are studying life writing with me this term. Alan Hollinghurst is one of the most daring, elegant, intelligent, and profound fiction writers that we have. Your numbers here tonight attest to the following of readers there is for the Booker Prize-winning author of The Swimming Pool Library, The Spell, The Folding Star, The Line of Beauty, and The Stranger's Child. He's an author who crosses the perilous bridge between high literary culture and popular storytelling with the greatest of ease and aplomb, who can be funny, ironical, touching, shocking, disturbing, and dark, all on one page, who's never written a poor sentence or had a dull idea. This series about, is about the relationship between fiction and auto-stroke biography, which makes his appearance tonight all the more interesting, since The Stranger's Child is in part a novel about biographer and biography, a rather disconcerting novel for any biographer. So we thought it would be suitable for uh, the talk tonight um, to take the form of an interview or perhaps even a conversation uh, between myself as a biographer and Alan as the novelist. Uh, after um, we've talked and he, he's read a bit from, from the novel, um, he'll be very happy to answer your questions and to sign as many books as time allows. And uh, for those of you who don't reach him, there, will also be, there are also some pre-signed uh, books uh, waiting for you. So please make him very welcome. Since we're meant to talk about autobiography as well as biography uh, tonight, could you start, Alan, by talking a bit about how you came to this novel, why you decided to do this? What, what was it about this idea that, that grabbed well, the, you? The, the, the biographical element is only a part of it, I suppose. Um, and I, I'm not sure I've ever confessed this before, but it, I think always in my books, I mean, several things contribute mm. to the genesis of the book. Uh, but one of the ones in this case was sort of being foiled of the chance to write a biography myself. Um, I'd always supposed that one day I would write a biography of the novelist Ronald Furbank, yeah. whom I'm very uh, interested in. Uh, I had no particular sort of claim or right to do this, but I somehow assumed I would, and I sort of accumulated materials in a rather haphazard way and sort of thought about it. Um, then somebody whom I actually knew quite well wrote to me and said, I'm intending to write a biography of Ronald Fairbank. And I, uh, um, which, he said, but he's mine. Uh, I, and I felt he was mine, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I identified the strongly possessive yeah. feeling yeah. about him. Um, and I said, well, well, well good luck. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'll understand that, you know, I will have to keep my own discoveries sort of to myself. I mean, I, I, I behaved absolutely appalling. Uh, <laughs> you mean you uh, said, I've got all kinds of things yeah, you might yeah, want to yeah. know, but yes. Um, <laughs> Then after a week or two, I, thought, I, I said I thought it was an enormous relief mm -hmm. um, and that I, I, I probably wasn't cut out to, to write biography. I don't have the, the patience for it. I'm not a, a scholar. Um, and that actually it was just a sign that what I ought to be doing was, was writing novels. Mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless, the, the whole situation of, of what's entailed in writing biography was sort of in my mind. 
Um, I knew that I wanted to write something which was about the First World War, mm -hmm. um, but that I very much didn't want to write um, a novel about the First World War, mm -hmm. which I think is just not, not my kind of thing. And I think I perhaps tend normally to write about the sort of social and intimate lives of perhaps slightly peculiar um, people. But the idea of something which would necessarily be deeply sort of researched about life in the trenches and so mm -hmm. on, I thought would probably just end up being an inadequate sing sing simulacrum of all sorts of other things that have been mm -hmm. written ab about that subject. So I wanted to avoid that. Um, but I thought something about the impact of yes. the war on a group of characters we've met before would be interesting. And that sort of meshed with the biographical idea, I suppose. Um, and the idea that one person who was killed in, in the war would be a poet. Yeah. Um, only 25 when he dies. Um, and about what happens to the, the memory, mm. um, the name uh, of a, a poet who dies so young with, um, in sort of heroic circumstances with sort of everything yes. still before them. It links in a way to some things that you have done in very different novels, so that in um, The Folding Star, there's a character who is a, a language teacher in, in Belgium who becomes very fascinated with the, the, the biographical secrets of the life of a symbolist painter and finds there's somebody sort of a curator who's kind of guarding, guarding the secrets, right. who doesn't believe you should expose the secrets. And, and, and um, uh, in um, uh, the swimming pool library, uh, Will Beckwith is writing about trying to write a biography or never succeeds in or writing trying a biography. Not write it, yeah. Or trying not to write a biography of someone who, it turns out, whose life secrets actually do have a bearing on his own life. So this is, this is clearly something that keeps on fascinating you in different yes, ways. Yes, it is. Um, perhaps it's sort of analogous to the the process of writing a novel itself, which is sort of unraveling the, the enigma of people. Um, sort of, I'm very fascinated by the idea of the understanding that one comes to of earlier generations, um, and it's certainly something that I tried to dramatize in mm. this book, which covers nearly a century, mm. um, and we're sort of in, inward with the lives of some people you know, in 1913, then in 1926. Um, Daphne, who is, I suppose, really the sort of main character of the book, um, we then rejoin, but from a completely different viewpoint. Um, and the story is suddenly is about the life of somebody else who happens to meet this 70-year-old woman, yes. knowing nothing about her at all, um, and then tries to sort of piece together what's happened to her and what her connection is to this poet who's, who's died. And I'm, I think perhaps because I've often had friends who are quite a lot older than my... Mm. Self, um, I'm fascinated by that way that I mean it's it's a more exaggerated form of the sort of ignor ignorance we have even about people of our mm. own mm. age. I mean it's, it's amazing how little we know even about our close friends. I think if we were to sit an exam, sure. in the, you know, there's so much we don't. Or know. have to write their obituaries. Yes, yes, exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Um, and, and there's a wonderful parallel whereby each section. Um, I'm, I'm sure everyone in the audience has read it, but we'll sort of explain it as we go on. But each section begins with the reader in that position too, of having, not having things explained and having to piece together who it is you're meeting and why are we here now and who, the, exactly. who these people yeah. are. I wonder, would you, before we get any deeper in, I wonder whether you might read a little yes. bit. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read a bit from the second section of the book set in 1926. Um, this is a... The whole of the second section of the book just takes place at a, uh, 
a country house called Corley Court, which is um, the family home of Cecil Valance, the poet who's been killed. Um, Shall I do it all from there? Um, And one of these sort of surprises, which Hermione was alluding to, is um, the reader doesn't know at the beginning of the section that uh, Daphne, who had got involved with Cecil before the war, um, has married um, Cecil's younger brother, Dudley. Um, and a rather sort of difficult weekend uh, party has been convened um, for people who knew Cecil to meet um, a man called Sebastian Stokes, who is going to write um, at the request uh, of Cecil and Dudley's mother, Louisa, um, a memoir of him uh, to preface a, a collected poems. Um, so he's one after another uh, interviewing people in, in the library of this large Gothic country house. Um, just before this, Daphne has been talking to a, a, a woman called Eva Riley, who's been brought in by Dudley to do away with all the um, excesses of the Victorian decor of the house and replace them with a sort of hygienic, modern, white interiors. <laughs> um, the library has a slightly strange aura to Daphne because it's the room in which her mother-in-law, Louisa, uh, performed a kind of um, spiritualist exercise um, called book tests um, in an attempt to um, get in touch with the spirit of her dead son. Um, This is something where a medium conveys a message saying that if one goes to a particular um, page of the third book on the seventh shelf, um, you will find um, a significant message. Um, What else do I need to tell you? Oh, yes, that Cecil, uh, when staying with Daphne's family in the first part of the book, had, had written in her autograph book a long poem, um, ostensibly um, dedicated to her, but the reader knows that um, it's really about his um, passionate affair with Daphne's brother. So Daphne's called in to the library for her session. Daphne gave a bland nod to Eva and went into the library, and when Sebi closed the door behind her, the click confirmed her earlier sense of the process. You watched for a bit, and then you were part of it. A slight awkwardness at being a guest in her own house coloured the first moments for both of them, but they smiled through it. I feel rather like a doctor, said Sebi. Mrs Riley thought a detective, said Daphne. (coughs) Sebi was hesitant but sure. Really, I hope no more than a well-meaning friend, he said, and waited for Daphne to sit down. On the big table, he had laid out the publication in which Cecil's verses had appeared, a small pile of periodicals, the anthologies, Georgian poetry, the Cambridge poets, and the one book he'd published in his lifetime, Night Wake and Other Poems, in its soft grey paper covers, easily dog-eared and torn. Another pile seemed to contain things in manuscript. There was her autograph book, given up this morning. Daphne was impressed and, again, unsettled by the evidence of a clear procedure. She saw that she hadn't prepared... This was because she hadn't been able to. Her mind wouldn't fix on any of the things she knew she might say. She'd had an unaccountable confidence that inspiration would come to her as soon as Sebi's questions began. Forgive me for one moment, Sebi said, turning to the table and starting to search through the pile of handwritten things. Daphne glimpsed her own letters from Cecil, which she had also dutifully surrendered. Again, she didn't want to think about them. 
She looked at his stooped back and then at the long, dim room beyond him. Though she was, as Eva had said, a reader, she had never exactly taken to the library, like Dudley's study, which she never entered. It was part of the house outside her sway. Sometimes she came in to look for a book, a novel from the great leather sets of Trollope or Dickens, or an old bound volume of Punch for Wilfie, her little boy, to work out the cartoons. But she couldn't quite shake off the feeling of being a visitor, as if in a public library with rules and fines. As the scene of her mother-in-law's book tests, too, it had an unhappy air. Of these, Sebi probably knew nothing, but to her the room was tainted by earlier attempts to contact Cecil. All nonsense, of course, but like much nonsense, not entirely easy to dismiss. Sebi sat down on the same side of the table as she was, and again with an evident awareness of the niceties. She half his age, but a titled lady. He far more clever, a distinguished guest who'd been asked to perform a peculiar service for his hosts. I hope this isn't distressing for you, he said. Oh, not at all, said Daphne graciously, her smile expressing a mild amazement at the thought that perhaps it should be. She saw Sebi's own undecided glance. He said... Dear Cecil aroused keen feelings in many of those who crossed his path. Indeed he did. And you would seem, from the letters you so generously shared with me, to have had a similar effect on him. I know, isn't it awful, said Daphne. (laughs) Ha, Sebi, again unsure of her. He turned to pick up a clutch of the letters. She hadn't been able to read them again herself, out of a strong compound embarrassment at everything they said about both of them. There are beautiful passages. I I sat up late with them last night in my room. He smiled mildly as he turned over the small folded pages, recreating his own pleasure. Daphne saw him propped up in the very grand bed in the garnet room and handling these papers with a mixture of eagerness and regret. (laughs) He was used to dealing with confidential matters, though not as a rule, perhaps, the amorous declarations of excitable young men. He hesitated looked up at her and started reading with an affectionate expression. The moon tonight, dear child, I suppose shines as bright on Stanmore as it does on Madame Collet's vegetable garden and on the very long nose of the adjutant, who is snoring enough to wake the Hun on the far side of the room. Are you too snoring? Do you snore, child? Or do you lie awake and think of your poor, dirty Cecil far away? He is much in need of his Daphne's kind words, then. Sebi petered out discreetly at the Slytherin to intimacy. Delightful, isn't it? Oh, uh, yes, I don't remember, said Daphne, half turning her head to see. The ones from France are a bit better, aren't they? (laughs) I found them most touching, said Sebi. I have letters of my own from him, two or three, but these strike quite another tone. Really, he had something to write about, said Daphne. He had a great deal to write about, said Sebi, with a quick smile of courteous reproof. He looked through a few more letters, while Daphne wondered if she could possibly explain her feelings, even had she wanted to. She felt she would have to understand them first, and this unnatural little chat was hardly going to help her to do that. What she felt then, and what she felt now, and what she felt now about what she felt then, it wasn't remotely easy to say. Sebi was every inch the bachelor, his intuitions about a young girl's first love and about Cecil himself as a lover were unlikely to be worth much. Cecil's way of being in love with her was alternately to berate her and to berate himself. There wasn't much fun in it for all his famed high spirits. Yet he always seemed happy when away from her, which was most of the time, 
and she had sensed more and more how much he enjoyed the absences he was always deploring. The war, when it came, was an absolute godsend. <laughs> Sebi said, tell me if I'm being too inquisitive, but I feel it will help me to a clearer vision of what might have been. Here's the letter, what is it, June 1916. Tell me, Daphne, will you be my widow? Oh, yes, she coloured slightly. Do you remember how you replied to that? Oh, I said, of course. And you considered yourselves engaged? Daphne smiled and looked down at the deep red carpet, almost puzzled for a moment that she'd ended up here anyway. What was the status of a long-lost expectation? She couldn't now recapture any picture she might then have had of a future life with Cecil. As far as I remember, we both agreed to keep it a secret. I wasn't altogether Louisa's idea of the next Lady Valance. Sebi smiled back rather furtively at this little irony. Your letters to Cecil haven't survived. I do hope not. I have the impression Cecil never kept letters, which is really rather trying of him. He saw you coming, Sebi, said Daphne, <laughs> and laughed to cover the surprise of her own tone. He wasn't used to teasing, but he, she wasn't sure he minded it. Indeed, Sebi rose and looked for a book on the table. Well, I don't want to keep you too long. Oh, well, you haven't. Perhaps she'd rattled him after all. He thought she was simply being flippant. What I hope you might do, said Sebi, is to write down for me a few paragraphs, simply evoking dear Cecil and furnishing perhaps an anecdote or two, a little memorandum. A memorandum, yes. And then, if I may quote from the letters, she had a first glimpse of his impatience, the impersonal logic of even the most flattering diplomatist. Of course, one had to remember that he was burdened with far more pressing things. Uh, I suppose that would be all right. I expect to call you simply Miss S, unless, unless you object, which Daphne found after a mere moment's fury she didn't. And now I might ask you just to run through two acres with me for any little insights you might give me, local details and so on. I didn't like to press your mother. Oh, by all means, said Daphne, with a muddled feeling of relief and disappointment that Sebi had failed to press her too. But that was it, of course. She saw it now. It was good not to have wasted time on it. He was going to say nothing in this memoir of his. Louisa was in effect his editor. And this weekend of research, for all its sadness and piquancy and interesting embarrassments, was a mere charade. He picked up the autograph album, the mauve silk now rucked and stained by hundreds of grubby thumbs, and leafed delicately through. There was something else in it for him, no doubt. A busy man wouldn't make this effort without some true personal reason. Sebi, too, had been awfully fond of Cecil. She gazed up at the carved end of the nearest bookcase and the stained glass window beyond it in a mood of sudden abstraction. She pictured Cecil as he'd been on his last leave. She had a feeling that when she met him that hot summer night, he had just come from dinner with Sebi. Well, he was never going to know about that. For now, she had to come up with something more appropriate, something that she felt wearily had already been written and that she had merely to find and repeat. Thank you. Thank you very much. So that wonderfully awkward and edgy encounter between the person who really was there uh, and this, this sort of extraordinarily diplomatic and polite interrogator who is clearly going to write an, a hopelessly uh, compromised 
book under the thumb of the grieving mother and who's exactly. been trying to call him up from the past. That's the sort of first stage alongside a wonderfully sentimental marble tomb of Cecil in the, in the family home, which is a little bit like the tomb of Shelley in, uh, in, right. in, in Munich. Um, yeah. And then out of that builds up over 100 years, as you say, what you call a kind of archipelago of documents, whereby that first memoir... Um, then gets superseded and, and undone and subverted by a whole series of publications of um, partial editions of, of Cecil's letters and conflicting family memoirs, and you, know, you find that things are being made away with or burnt or whatever. And then gradually, as we come into the um, 21st century, there is a biographer who we'll come back to uh, who, begin, who pieces this all together and sort of unravels what's happened. So... Were you thinking about the way in which biographical history has, has sort of changed and developed? Were you using this story of Cecil Valance and his afterlife as a kind of prototype or a sort of almost a metaphor for the way lives have been treated and written? I think I was, yes. I mean, the, the huge change partly in our, um, our understanding of privacy and so forth. I mean, someone who, who read a biography in the period when this book begins, in 1913, mm. would not have expected to learn anything about the intimate life of the subject. Really. Um, someone reading a biography at the time when it finishes in 2008 would feel positively cheated if they weren't given every detail. Of the, I, mean, mm. I think that's an enormous change. Um, the, uh, the whole period... Uh, I was just reading a wonderful essay by Mark Girouard about... The, sort of various fictions in Tennyson's um, biography. And um, he has a wonderful phrase saying, around about the turn of the century, behind the, what he calls the brassier sounds of, of the, the era, you can hear this, this constant sound of scratching and snipping and effect, <laughs> detect a faint smell of smoke on the air, uh, which is all the widows and children of great Victorian figures um, sort of doc doctoring, obliterating, bur 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 burning them. the... Yes. Um, and you know, was it Princess Beatrice herself who, wrote, who edited Queen Victoria's, her mother's uh, diaries, copying out all, all the bits that she thought of it and then burning the rest. Um, so that destruction of evidence, um, making things absolutely ir irrecoverable. Yes. Well, I'm sure um, it still goes on. I mean, I yes. think there are still people snipping um, away at their um, dearly departed um, letters and so yes. on. But, but clearly the, the, the idea of censorship was much more ingrained. Ingrained, in yeah. Um, and I was very interested, obviously, in the case of, of Rupert Brooke. Um, and, you know, it's not exactly modelled on it, but, but I... Was it modelled on it? But, but in that yeah. the case of, you know, Eddie, Eddie Marsh being yes. um, commissioned by uh, Rupert Brooke's mother to produce this memoir, which yeah. she, um, she created an enormous amount of trouble about, um, in which almost the whole of Brooke's private life was sort yeah. of um, erased, smoothed. Yes. Um, I think Catherine Nesbitt, who is, is simply referred to as X in it, who was one of his main girlfriends, yeah. um, and produced this, this portrait which was completely unrecognisable yes. to anybody. I mean, Virginia Woolf wrote, yes. wrote a Outraged about well, yeah, so, sentimentality. Uh, uh, so was Brooke? Uh, you, you must always be asked this about this novel, but but was the was the figure of Rupert Brooke uh, as a kind of sentimentalized, mythologized uh, First World War 
hero, though of course he, didn't, he wasn't killed in battle, um, and what happens to him afterwards and the way that the poetry becomes taken over and used by, in different ways by different generations of readers. Was, was that the key inspiration? The, I think it perhaps this? was, yeah. yes. Um, I very much grew up with Brooks' poems myself, and my mother loved them, still does love them. So, I mean, I, I grew up with, with couplets from Grantchester and things in, in my mind. And the, the long poem, which Cecil writes in Daphne's autograph book, is, is clearly a Grantchester-type mm. uh, poem, uh, which you know, is sort of rubbish, really. But uh, after, the, after the war, it, it, it's taken to symbolise us. It, it becomes a nostalgic vision mm. of, of the, the world that they were fighting for and mm. that, in a way, has been lost. Mm. Mm. Um, so... Uh, also, the, the, the close cut, not only of the mother, but the close custodianship of, of Geoffrey Keynes, yes. who, um, who then edited Brooks' letters, not, which I think came out in 1968, something like that, but still, you know, very, very trimmed. Mm. Um, and other sort of more, more in <coughs> details which complicated the mm. picture of Rupert Brooks' sexual life, you know, really only appearing, I think, in the 1980s yeah. and yeah. 90s. And so it's a very slow process of, of emergence of, yes. of, of of the sort of intimate, yeah. intimate thing. And is he a useful figure to you for this because uh, the, the biographical versions of him and the way in which he's been uh, written about are absolutely inextricably bound up um, with the sort of mythologised hero and the, yes. know, a kind of romanticised, sentimentalised yes. version of him. And in, in, in your character, who, you know, obviously it's not Rupert Brooke, but, but there's something of him in there, the, the actual Cecil balance um, is rather unpleasant in yes. lots of ways. Yes. Uh, he's not a very good poet, uh, and he's, uh, he's a bit of a bastard in, yes. in lots of ways. And so right, yeah. that gets uncovered, doesn't it, as the, as the book? Yes. Or it gets concealed and then uncovered. Well, I think people, you know, he arrives um, in the first to stay for this, this weekend with, with this more humble family, the, the Sauls, and they're, they're all rather sort of ex- excited but rather anxious about him. They don't, know, they, they don't quite know what they are thinking about him because you know, he's sort of dazzling them and, um, and they, they want to find him wonderful because he's George's, the first friend that George has ever brought home. And so, um, but the mother, I think, thinks, well, perhaps he might make a nice husband for Daphne one day. <laughs> um, that she doesn't really like him or trust mm. him particularly. So I think that um, one sees from... I hope the reader is not sees from early on that Cecil's rather a mixed bag. Mm. Mm. Um, but, of course, I was interested p- particularly in his... I mean, something much more important than in the Brooks story with the fact that, that he's so sort of bisexual mm. and, um, and uh, that... I think it's the, a, a question about the Cambridge world in which he and... George live is one in which, and they're both members of the Apostles, uh, this sort of secret um, conversazione society, um, uh, who's, so they have a candor as a sort of principle with them, and, and I think that sort of world of, around with figures like Lytton Strachey and so on, who, who made a great point of um, talking with complete clarity mm. um, about the private life and mm. so on, in a way which would never happen in, in suburban Stanmore where the Saul family are living. So you've got sort of different mm. moral um, sort of perspectives at play at the same yes. time. Um, how did I get on to that? Well, uh, it's, coming on to Strachey uh, is, is very telling because the, there's a sort of key shifting point of change in 20th century biography in, in 1918 when, uh, when Strachey publishes uh, at the end of the war 
um, eminent Victorians, which takes four sort of statuesque and somewhat mythologised figures, Florence Nightingale, Cardinal Manning, General Gordon, um, Thomas Arnold, headmaster of rugby, and explores them very piquantly and satirically and ironically, uh, not for their sort of public achievements, but actually through the lens of psychoanalysis, really, or through psychology, as, as neurotic case histories of, of repression and inner yes. disturbance. And that was a very shocking uh, and, and enfranchising moment in the history of, of British biography, yes. which then, in a way, you know, get, gets moved away from. But it's as if, by, by using Strachey in the book, and you mention him, and he's clearly a kind of key figure in the book, it's as if you're drawing a parallel between what happens to the history of biography and life writing in Britain in the 20th century and uh, what happens to uh, homosexual freedom or the, the, uh, the liberty or the increasing enfranchisement um, uh, through the century, very slowly through the century, um, yes. of, of gay people. Um, so, in a way, there's a sort of strong parallel, isn't there? Between there is a parallel. It's a, yes, they're, they're perhaps sort of slightly staggered things. Um, and I, the middle section of the book is set in uh, the summer of 1967. And, in fact, it just ends in the week before the passing of the Sexual Offences Bill, which sort of decriminalised um, homosexuality. Yeah. And um, that's obviously a very pivotal mm. moment. And though nothing but the law perhaps changed overnight. It, 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 it sort of began a period in which all sorts of things could be said that couldn't. And, and I think it's remarkable that Michael Holroyd's great biography of Lytton Strachey was published just a few months after that. He seems uncannily to have been attuned mm. to the... Mm. And he writes wonderfully in his um, later introduction to the later yes. edition of, about that of sort of approaching these old Bloomsbury figures and, and sort of who's, who'd had candor as a sort yeah. of watchword, you know, and say, were they prepared to maintain this? Were they yeah. prepared to go public? About One of them says to him, am I going to go to prison <laughs> yeah. if you publish this book? Yeah. Uh, uh, in sort yeah. of mid-60s. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. most of them sort of rose to the, oh. rose to the challenge. Um, and I think I'm right in saying that. I mean, this was the first biography to write in detail, unembarrassedly, um, with you know, massive illustration about, yeah. about the, the private life of a gay I writer. think that's right. And he says in that wonderful um, retrospect on the writing of the book that he absolutely decided that the, the basic principle of the book would be to write about homosexuality absolutely as a norm, to, to, to have no, as he called it, veils of decorum in a rather yes. <laughs> genteel phrase. And, and that was absolutely the principle of the book. Yes. And it could, I don't think it could have happened. And it is a Strachey-esque principle, isn't it? And I think, yeah. I think James Strachey felt that you know, Lytton wanted to, who was his brother, that he, he, mm. he was sort of preparing when I mean, he died, actually mm. rather young, but uh, you know, some, some much more organised defence of homosexuality and so forth. Mm. Um, so, but I mean, that, was, that brought in the era in which I was sort of growing up, I suppose, and when I was yes. at this university and, and doing my own graduate work in the mid-70s about um, gay writers like Forster and so on who, mm. couldn't, who couldn't write openly about their homosexuality. Um, and I remember very keenly that atmosphere of that period, when the sense that things could be said, and you know, the new light in which things mm. could be mm. could be seen. Um, and I think it led to a period of sort of cla claiming of figures, you know, outing of figures, yes. um, and perhaps at times to a degree of wish, wish fulfilment about. Uh, or wishful thinking. But it uh, also presumably led to your own, just to move away from The Stranger's Child for a moment, but I want to come back to it, but it presumably led to your own uh, um, 
your own sense of yourself as having a sort of uh, almost a, a duty to or responsibility to as a novelist, uh, as an imaginative writer, to write as, as openly and as candidly as you possibly could. So that if you take a kind of um, a history of uh, uh, gay fiction, I mean, uh, it sounds terribly sort of typecasting, but if you, if you take from Henry James and Proust through Furbank and Forster... Uh, you know, and then to you and, and Edmund White, you are very much part of, you are a key player, actually, in a transformation that's taken about a sort of century of writing. Yes, that's um, right. Um, and you must feel, you, must, you know that. I mean, that's part of... I think, yes, it was a sort of catching yeah. up. I mean, I think comparable candour existed in sort of straight... I mean, Updike and people have been writing with great candour about heterosexual right. lives. Um, but, um, so... Um, yes, I wanted to avail myself of, the, of those new yeah. freedoms yeah. too, and I did. Yes, I think as a novelist, I felt very, I, mean, I think that first book, *The Swimming Pool Library*, very much grew out of that thesis in a way, um, and I've, I just felt I was extraordinarily fortunate to have this this fascinating yeah. s- subject to explore, which no one really had in in England in yeah. um, in sort of literary fiction. Yeah. We're talking. Uh, in rather sort of utopian and progressive terms, I think. And uh, it's not clear from The Stranger's Child uh, that the, the movement from censorship, decorums, hidden things, burnt letters, you know, secrets, through to uh, a kind of deconstructive narrative of someone's life, which, which, which you know, fills in all the gaps and says, ah, X wasn't the child of Y, they were actually the illegitimate child. So it's not necessarily um, a good thing, is it? I mean, it doesn't necessarily show that biography has been constantly improving no, over the decades. There's no. quite a lot of anxiety and gloom about the biographical project in yes. this book, not least in the figure of the central biographer, who's a sort of rodent-like, um, you know peas in the back of pe- other people's gardens to mark out his territory and, you know, seen peering into other people's windows and infiltrating himself into other people's like, It's kind of very dubious picture of yeah. the biogra- biographer at work. Um, it is. I mean, I, I, very, you know, I think, obviously, that, you know, there, we've just been talking about some, I mean, there are great, there are great biographies and there are terrible ones. Um, and I, in this case, wanted to of course, we don't know in the end just how good Paul Bryant's no. biography is. I mean, he avails himself of these new freedoms, perhaps. I mean, he's perhaps rather overdoes it, one feels. Um, but he... Um, I mean, my, my feeling is that, you know, biography, like, like writing a novel or something, you know, um, is something which depends not only on proper scholarship and research, but on... The, wis- the wisdom of the writer, and that mm. you can have a, you, know, you can have terrible novels and good ones, and the mm. same is true of, of biographies. Um, and I think, as someone who's often been interested in rather minor figures myself, I'm aware of a particular sort of curse on the, the minor figure who's discovered by someone perhaps slightly cranky, um, <laughs> who produces uh, produces an inadequate book. Yeah. I mean, Ronald Furbank, uh, uh, you know, is a, mm. um, who's a sort of major minor. Figure. Yes. Um, Denton Welch brings uh, to mind. Obviously. Well, Denton yeah. Welch was an was a example very much in, yeah. in, in my mind, yes. He was mm-hmm. a wonderful writer um, whose uh, life was written by Michael his dad, Delano. isn't he? Michael Delano, yeah. we can say this. It's Michael Delanoy. Um, 
Perhaps we yeah. shouldn't go on. Uh, no, I remember, I re I remember reviewing, yeah. reviewing that <laughs> biography, which published simultaneously with Michael Delanoy's edition of Dent and Welch's journals, appallingly badly done. Um, <laughs> And he was quoting constantly from the journals in the biography. And I, just, and I think in about at least 80% of cases, he'd simply rewritten the quotations from the journal to sort of fit into his text. Uh, and it was, to me, a very shocking sort of... Yes. You know, I, I was rather na naive, perhaps. Um, I remember saying to another Oxford biographer about this, he said, well, of course I do that all the time. You know. um, I don't think I should say who that was. Um, but... Um, <laughs> But um, that, that, was, that was a bit of an eye-opener eye to yes. me. And just a, a, yeah. the simple, a simple fact, of course, that a, a biography isn't only undertaken out of a desire to do justice to its subject, but it's a significant stepping stone or whatever in the career of its yes. author. And yeah. you, have, you have that very brilliantly in this book about, you know, it, as it turns out, Cecil Valance's biography turns out to have been the sort of first step in Paul Bryant's yes. career. Yes. And that's how we see him at the end, having become a sort of professional biographer who moves on from one to the next. Yes. So you're very sharp in this book about um, the possibly scurrilous and base motives of the biographical project. Um, and also about how difficult the whole thing is, as in the encounter that you read, and there are many such, and some of them are very, very funny in the book, where uh, you're, you're playing, as Paul Bryant says, a peculiar kind of game in which you're trying to get people to tell you things which you may already think you know, but you can't quite ask them. Yes. Or, and then there's this one thing where you said, um, a recurrent little knot of self-defeating resistance that perhaps all biographers of recent subjects had to confront and undo, which is that people wouldn't tell you things and then they blamed you for not knowing them, yes. um, which is something quite sort of a bit familiar Did to me. Did that ring true to um, yes. It rings very true. Yes. Um, and, and I think it's very good and funny and wry about the way in which there is only so far that the biographer can go because, of course, also memories, people's memories that they tell you uh, are often wonky yes. or distorted. Well, that is, I mean, a, a really perhaps the sort of central theme of the book, I, I suppose, to which the, the biography one is in a way subservient. You know, but if, if um, memory, memory, which of course is also the, the novelist's principal tool, uh, if memory itself is, is one of the main things that the writing of biography is, is dependent on, then it's, it's obviously an extremely fallible quantity, you know. Um, and I've, you know, as one gets older, I, I'm certainly struck by this more and more that, I mean, I think it's very hard to remember exactly more than a few words that someone said to me last week, you know, much less. No, really, I mean, I think it's very hard to remember anything anybody says to one, um, much less 40 years ago. So when someone writes a memoir with yes. sort of pages of verbatim conversation yes. something they did before the war, you know, you just know that they, they've made it yeah. all up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and even if, even if you keep a a journal, I mean, it's more likely to be accurate, but a journal, too, is a, you know, an exercise in selection, rearrangement, manipulation, often sort of making the subject, the, the author of the, the diary, sort of feel yeah. better about something. So, I mean, all the very materials that biography works with are, are liable to... So is it always a charade? I mean, it, you, uh, you use the word charade in, in the passage that you read, and Daphne who goes through the, the, the whole book, says to, in the last big scene with the, with the biographer, she says to herself, the thing is, they, they all get it wrong. And they put it in as if it were gospel. They all get it wrong, she said. So it, it, does this book 
does this book mean that one should never trust a biography again once one has read <laughs> this novel? No, I really don't think... No, I mean, I revert to what I was saying just now. You know, I, mean, I think there are evidently untrustworthy biographies. Mm. Um, and really, I'm just... Um, I'm just struck by... I mean, it's more... I think the book is more about just how... how vague our grasp on, yes. on um, things happening around us in the present is much less in the past. And mm. as I was saying earlier on, how, how, how little we're sure of about the lives of others. Indeed, after a while, about our own, because yes. so, so much is sort of effaced from them yes. by the passage of time. You talk about your own life. I wanted to ask you one question, which is maybe perhaps more, more general about your work as a whole rather than, rather than this book. And I suppose it is a question about uh, to what extent are you putting yourself in, in, in the books. It's, it, that sounds rather crude, but I'm, I'm interested in the way that style is terribly important, not just as a tool for you, but as a, as a subject, actually, in a lot of your work. In, in The Line of Beauty, Nick is writing a thesis on the late work of Henry James, um, and uh, he talks about his style, style that hides things and reveals things at the same time. And that book, Line of Beauty, is very much about style and spoils and possessions and, and objects. But I thought, uh, thinking about your work as a whole, I thought that in, in several of the books there's a kind of dominant style. There's the style of the, the Maeterlinck-type sort of symbolist artist and the sort of vertigo of strangeness that you get from that in in the folding star. And there's a kind of Furbankian high camp, in a way, in the, in the swimming pool library. I'm not sure about the spell. Maybe there's a sort of Vanity Fair, Thackeray-ish kind of comedy, of comedy of manners there. And here, there's a very strong tone and legacy and feeling for Tennyson, who is the, the in the title, and the, the Georgian poets, a kind of sweetness and melancholy and nostalgia that comes through in your own wonderful sort of artifacts of these poems that Cecil wrote. Do you, do you think you use a kind of canopy of style to, to prevent self-disclosure, or as a way perhaps of putting yourself into the novel, putting your own obsessions and preoccupations into the novel without talking about yourself directly? Sorry, it's a yeah. very convoluted I question. I think I'd never do talk about myself directly, and I certainly, in a narrative way, I mean, I never sort of write about my life, you mm. know, just changing the names and things. Mm. Um, but I think the books must be absolutely sort of saturated with, with me. Mm. And I have a habit of giving, you know, at the most simple level, giving my protagonist my own interests, as it might be writing a thesis on Henry James yes. or, or being crazy, crazy <laughs> yeah. about Wagner or something, yes. you know, just as, a, you know, because a book is one's own domain, you know, yeah. and one's messing like. around, we well, can do yeah. what you like, you know. Sure. Um, and, it, and it's nice to fill, fill it up with things that you, you're interested in. Um, so, um, but do you consciously say to yourself, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give myself, away. I'm going to put myself in, but not give myself away? I don't think of it as being an act of concealment like that, because I, I think, you know, I, I'm invested in trying to imagine the lives of characters who are, you know, often share something with me, but are mm. necessarily distinct from me. Um, and Paul, Paul Bryant was an this rodent-like biographer. Was in it. I mean, he, he was a difficult character to create in a way because he was someone with, from whom I was withholding a lot of these. Yeah. You know, there's a, a scene where he, he, has to, he goes to a piano recital. And in The Line of Beauty, I'd had a piano recital, which young Nick, the main character, is sort of the only person who's really sort of 
enjoying it or getting anything out of it. And he's surrounded by all these Tories who are sort of bored and just dying for a drink. Um, and he, he's very sort of attuned to the, the music. And, um, and I'm, I've, so I've decided I would do the inverse of this book. Yeah. So Paul, Paul Bryant is tone deaf and he's sitting in a room where everybody else is sort of absolutely loving it you know, and he hasn't got a clue what's going on. Um, so that, that was a sort of conscious, yeah. a conscious yeah. sort of withholding. Um, I think um, the question of style is such a difficult one for any writer to answer about themselves and I think, I think questions of analyses of style or whatever are things which are possible for a a reader, but not yeah. for the writer. And yeah. I think, you know, to be too self-conscious about yeah. writing in a style yeah. would be terribly I suppose I meant more that you are a deeply literary uh, writer. I mean, your, your literary interests, your musical interests, your artistic interests and passions absolutely fill the books, and they're sort of spread in the books. And, and so often they give the book a kind of a tune more than a style, mm. maybe. Yes. Well, I hope they have a, yes, they have a sort of tone, a tone or something which is coherent. Yeah. Again, I find it very difficult to say. I mean, I'm aware, of course, of, of sort of often sort of crossing a corner of the territory of some great writer in the yeah. past and sort of, you know, tipping my hat yeah. to them but getting on with my own yeah. business. Yes. Um, and I think the first part of this book is, you know, very obviously takes place in, in Forster territory. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before, the, before the Great War, sort of London... Out of, mm. outermost suburbs of London, the Cambridge background and so on. Sure. Um, and I, I was, I had to be a bit wary of that in, yes. in a way. When I started writing it, there was just too much, I was writing pastiche Forster and I very much mm. didn't, I, mean, I did want it to be by me and not by Ian sure. Forster. Um, <laughs> but it's a kind of tribute. But it's, it's a sort of tri tribute, yes. yes. Um, yeah. but, I, but the important thing was to sort of preserve myself against pastiche and just sort of moving into somebody else's style. I was thinking about Forster. I mean, you, you, you do, you have a quote from The Longest Journey uh, um, and uh, there's something of Howard's own, of course, at the, at, in the beginning. And I was thinking about the way in which the Forster's subject, particularly, I think, in those two books, is partly about England and Englishness and who's going to inherit England. Who, who are the real English and, and where does England lie in people's minds? And I suppose it, this is a very English novel. It's very much about a history of England. Uh, it doesn't really go outside. I mean, do you, do you think of yourself as a very English novelist writing in an English tradition? I recognise that I am, but I don't sort of. I'm not sort of tingling with that feeling every time I <laughs> sit, sit down. Sit down at my desk. Oh, so English. Uh, um, um, yeah, it is a great... I mean, I do feel mm. profoundly attached to my native land, I have yes. to say. Um, and it seems naturally just to sort of... I mean, I'm... One can sound terribly sort of poncy talking about this, but I mean, I, I, in a way, I don't... There isn't an element of active construction in my novels, obviously, but in some strange way, they sort of accumulate in my mind from mm. various different strands. Mm. They sort of come to me. They suggest themselves to me, and I mm. end up writing something which, you know, isn't by any means a wholly sort of conscious... Mm. Um, strategic decision. It's just sort of mm. some, something which has come about. Um, and that thing that comes about does tend to be very steeped in yeah. Englishness. Yeah. But I'm not doing it out of a sort of program to, no, no, to no. analyse English. The question was wrong. Well. The question no, was too programmatic. Yeah. But, yeah. But I, yeah. um, I rather dread things that are too programmatic. You know. um, 
I've been hogging this uh, question, so I'm sure that people would like to ask you one or two things. There are um, helpful people with a microphone, and because there are quite a lot of people here, I think if you could wait for the, for the mic. Do wave your hands in the air, but wait for... Yes, there's a lady here. Right, Simon, right down here. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Um, I've got a comment and a question. Uh, the comment is that um, James Strachey said of Rupert Brooke that he was um, twice as clever and half as nice as people thought, <laughs> which I think probably covers it. Um, my question is really about Paul Bryant. I was a bit shocked when I read in the novel what he, his bit of trickery in Blackwell's. <laughs> um, sorry. And then... Um, at the end, we, we discover that perhaps he lost his job because of something slightly dishonest. Now, quite a bit of what he, of, in the book, is um, written in the first person. So I wondered if this was, you introducing those two things, was to try and make us doubt him in some way. Okay. I'm not, I'm not sure that everyone could hear. Could you hear that? You did hear, yes. Um, anxiety about the trickery of the, the character of Paul. Yes, I mean, Paul he's Brown. sort of a, a bit of a kleptomaniac. And, yes. and, I mean, it was, you know, I suppose, a rather sort of, perhaps a rather crude sort of symbolic idea of him sort of ste stealing these people's lives for his own gain, as it were. Um, at first, when we first see him, he's sort of given this um, the sort of humiliating task by Corinna. Um, Daphne's daughter of, of having to sort of empty out a trough full of manure and so and she immediately sets him to, sets him to work and, and so, I, so that too seemed to, seemed to be a, a silly image of someone sort of digging around in, in the dirt for this, for this family uh, but then rather getting his own back later on um, yes I mean those, those were ways certainly I think of su suggesting that um, he had issues were you trying to position him as a bit of an unreliable narrator well, he's not really a narrator. I mean, there are... He's in places. There's, there's one section of the... Uh, one or two little tiny extracts from his own, his own diary, um, you know, which is another document waiting for somebody else to write the biography of Paul Brand from, I guess. Um, really, I mean, it was a, a more a technical question that, that the fourth part of the book, when he's carrying out his investigations into the... interviewing the su survivors of... Cecil Balance. I mean, the structure of that section is really a series of interviews, and I wanted to vary them formally and make each one different. Mm -hmm. So in one of them, I just used the device of the tape recorder not having um, worked, so that he has to write, write down everything he can, can remember as, as soon as possible. I must say, that was, that was one of the... I don't know how many people have read the book, though I get the sense quite a lot of people have, but that was one of the moments in the book where I did laugh. There were many where I did laugh out loud, which is a for a biographer reading this scene, where um, you read the transcription of the, of the tape and none of the questions have come out. So all the answers are there, transcribing. Yes, he was very... Yes, this lady here. Yeah. You'll have to excuse me if this is a bit convoluted because I'm, I'm writing on you at the moment, so I'm trying to, oh, no. I'm going to try you have and get to as make much. It, it's a test. You have to make it very simple and you're quick. Not, you're okay. not writing um, my biography. <laughs> no, no. Um, so across the novels, and certainly from the middle of The Stranger's Child, there's um, kind of themes of um, textuality, of creating histories, of, of outing um, previous gay men and gay writers in particular. Um, but there's also, I think in all the books... Um, the kind of eroticism of private spaces, private gardens, private swimming pools. 
Um, how much do you think that in those things are in kind of conflict with each other, or, or do you think they are that emphasis on, on privacy um, against on this wish to out or to create histories? Okay. Um, well, of course, in the earlier parts of the book, you know, think if two men want to get up to something, they're going to have to do it in some sort of more or less private way. They're doing something um, illicit, shocking, probably to the, their nearest and dearest. Um, so I, I know it is rather a theme in my books that people, you know, that gay, gay men haven't sort of got somewhere to go, so that they're, they're often sort of making love in gardens and parks and woods and, and what have you. Um, rather than, you know, because they're not a sort of nor normal domestic unit. They don't have a, have a space of, of their own. Um, but I suppose by the... Again, I, you know, I never want to be too sort of programmatic about this, but I suppose by the end of the book, um, you know, we're, we're in a, a world where these, everything has mm -hmm. changed so much. I mean, one can't underestimate, I mean, underestimate, overestimate, uh, the, uh, the enormous sort of changes of the last quarter mm -hmm. of a century in... Uh, mm -hmm. uh, in I mean, legal changes, changes yeah. in attitude, a great sort of generational sort of shift in the understanding of, of gay men and gay life. And I thought that what, one thing that's very interesting to me about the, the, the stages in the book is that at the beginning, in the first scene, there's a kind of parallel universe, really. There's a parallel universe between the, the, the gay young men out hiding out in the garden and the kind of the, the marital, domestic, family life that's sort of going on inside the house. Um, and then by the end, everybody's in the same public space and there are people with civil partnerships and there are married men and there are, you know, married women. So there's a kind of open space, really, yeah. uh, at the that's end. Right. And it, it, there is a strong, you're right, there's a strong sense of sort of different kinds of enclosures and spaces as it goes yes. through. Yeah. Yes, uh, there's a gentleman here who was first next. Thank you. Um, you painted a picture of um, unreliable biographers and unreliable memories. So I suppose my question is, what happens then when you move on and start thinking about autobiography? Does it actually become just as difficult as biography itself? Yeah, good question. Yes, well, I mean, it is. It, you know, I have no plans present of writing well, and I think by the time I do get right to it, I really will have forgotten everything. So, <laughs> um, so you'll make it up back down. <laughs> I guess I should have to make it up. Um, no, I do, I mean, one sometimes thinks, you know, uh, one ought to write. I mean, sometimes you see, you think of people that you know now, and you think how you could write a sort of character sketch of them or something. Um, sometimes, terribly, the thing happens that you mentioned earlier, that you have to write an obituary for someone that you knew very well, and you find out just how hard it is to do that and in a way how little, you know, there are things you can say very vividly about your own experience of them but there's a huge amount about them that you, mm. you don't know. Um, I think um, much autobiography, I mean, uh, from what I was saying before, I mean much autobiography ha has a, not only in its ten tendency to enhance uh, and interpret the, uh, the, the subject's life um, mm. but in you know, very, the fallibility of memory itself I mean, is a very highly fictional yeah. form. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting that when asked about autobiography, you almost immediately start talking about writing about other people's lives. <laughs> Deflecting, yeah. as usual, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it is... Uh, we perhaps shouldn't digress into the 
to the Jameses. I've, I've just read this fascinating book by Michael Onesco called Monopolizing the Master, which is about the, the James family's sort of attempts to control the, the biographical, its own biographical materials, mm. and the famous case, obviously, of Hen Henry James supposedly editing his brother William's letters, mm. but sort of heavily cutting them and rewriting them mm. and enhancing the, mm. the wording and so forth. Mm. Um, Mm. And then presenting, you know, presenting these as oh, historical documents. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm, to be honest, much more interested in all these things that, that go wrong. Yeah, yes. you know, I'm of course gripped by all that because of Henry James making this enormous bonfire in his in his garden in towards the end of his life, which included very, very many of the letters that Edith Wharton had written to him. And as Edith Wharton's biographer, this is, as you can imagine, a very tantalising uh, thing to read about, especially when his letters to her remain, and many of them begin, you know, your, your letter with its dreadful news, <laughs> so <laughs> riveting and exciting, I cannot wait to hear more about this event, of course, it's yes. not there. You know. they all subjects should say quite clearly, should they, your news about, they should summarise. Or, or they shouldn't say in a letter, this is far too exciting <laughs> to talk about in a letter, we must wait until we meet, you know. <laughs> yes, a couple more, we have got time, yes, this lady here. I was just wondering, um, you've got real people, for example, John Stallworthy, who's here on my left, he comes in as a walk-on role in, in the middle of the book. I was just wondering if you'd talk about how difficult it is to differentiate between fantasy and reality in your fictional characters and your real characters. Well, I never had, a, I mean, I suppose the most prominent real character I've, I've used was Mrs. Thatcher in The Line of Beauty, and she, um, and she sort of, you know, had had to appear, and she makes a, a sort of cameo appearance. Um, I mean, I've actually never set eyes on Mrs. Thatcher, um, but I sort of feel as if I had, you know, because she was in our sitting rooms every day for yes. many years. And you have a wonderful uh, phrase when she comes to the room and says, "She she walks, or she came in, or rather, there's a gracious scuttle." <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, my general feeling is, you know, but for ex extended treatment, it's impossible. I mean, John John Stillworthy is. In, in as you know, he, he's seen across a room uh, as the, the biographer of Wilfred Owen at a, at a sort of slightly implausible conference about writing about war, which is happening in sort of the early 80s. Um, and I think you can, you know, that, that scene, I think then Paul, Paul Fussell, I sort of pretend is there as well, and yeah. you know, mixed up with other, with other yeah. fictional writers. Yeah. And, um, I think. To me, real people and fictional people do exist in sort of quite different sort of contin mm. continua, and I think I would find it very hard to sort of put you know, an extended treatment of a real person into a But you a book. do quite, I mean, the, the question is true. I mean, you do quite like to do it, don't you? I mean, my, the, the sort of, uh, Ronald Furbank has a kind of, there's a sort of scene. There's a scene with Tennyson in, in, in this. They're, they're offstage scenes, yes. but... You, you quite enjoy it. I mean, it's something you quite like doing, which is like to this, bring yeah, in yes, the stories I, I of like real the, people. I think there's something so, you know, quite elect electrifying about the possibility of that contact yes. with some, some sort of significant real person. Um, and I love the idea that in 1913, you know, that, that George and Daphne's mother had actually seen Tennyson on yes. her honeymoon when they were on the ferry going to their honey yes. honeymoon in the Isle of Wight. And, they, they, yes. and that this was a wonderful sort of, you know, a real sort of contact with this, this yes. archetypal Victorian yes. figure. But mm -hmm. by doing that, you make the fiction more real somehow, don't you? Isn't that a tactic? I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, um, 
Possibly, yes. Um, I mean, it could go wrong if you just kept on making it more authentic by putting in more and more people. You it know, could go wrong. Bit, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes, this gentleman here. Do you want to make, wait for the mic, please? Yeah, just here. Thanks. Um, quite by coincidence, I uh, read your interview with Peter Terzian. Oh, yes. And uh, there was something that struck me there. Um, you say uh, at one point to him, I'm awed by the symphonic uh, relevance of everything I am saying today. Four or five pages later, you say again, my books were going to form a sort of symphony. My books were going to form a form of symphony. Now, I think Harmony was in on that to some extent when talking about whether there was something underlying all your work. And my question really is, do you have a certain desire or impulse to underline your work with some kind of unity? Okay. And does this connect in any sense with your being a poet? Um, it's a rather Jamesy idea, isn't yes. it? Whether there is you know, the figure in the carpet, there is the master idea to the whole. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, both those things were said you know, with an awareness of, of their um, pretentiousness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I think it is, it is a question of... How, uh, which actually is something which one reads very little about, the sense that any writer has of what the sort of accumulating mm. shape of their own oppure mm. uh, is. And I suppose, every, you know, there's um, Toby Litt, all his, his books, each one begins with the next letter of the alphabet and so on, so he sort of knows how, how far he's got. You know. um, He'll have to uh, stop something. He will, <laughs> yes, I don't know what happens when he gets a um, zoo story or something. Um, <laughs> but um, I did, and because I sort of often tend to think by musical analogy. I, I, I sort of... It was just a sort of private thing to help me, in a way. Um, I sort of thought of right, that my first four books as sort of having formed a, a symphony. I mean, I, I do think it sounds a pretentious thing to say. Um, but the first book was a sort of... Was, these, had sort of, was a sonata movement with two narrative mm. voices. Um, the second one was a sort of long, introspective, sort of slow movement. The spell was kind of scherzo. Yeah. Um, and the line of beauty went back to the sort of material of the... It went back to 1983 when the first book was set yeah. and sort of developed yeah. it. For, yeah. so, and I, I did... You know, it, it, it was a so you do. So, so in a way, the, the, the answer to the question is sort of yes, in that you, you do think of... I mean, I'm always leery when I'm... You know, if I'm talking to a writer about saying this connects to another book or, you know, this is a little bit like something in an earlier book because yes. often writers will bridle when you say that and they'll say, are you trying to tell me all my books are the same? <laughs> you know, uh, this is a completely different book. And anyway, I don't remember that book. I can't remember the names of any of the characters. That, you know, and you quite yeah. often, that quite yes. often happens. Yes. Um, but it's, so it's very interesting to hear that you do actually think in terms of, it's not just your future biographer of whom, of course, there are going to be many. Um, who is going to try and create a whole shape out of what you do? I think they're perhaps slightly different things. I mean, I genuinely sort of can't remember a lot about the... the and I haven't read the Sui Paul Library for sort of 20 years or something. Sometimes people do ask me questions about and I'm genuinely sort of can't <laughs> think what the hell they're talking about. But, um, <laughs> so that is, that's perhaps slightly different from this other yeah. sort of sense mm -hmm. I, I, I have of, of 
the general shape of the, yes. of the thing. And starting this book, you know, what was I, if the symphony was over, what, what, what was I doing yes. next? Yes. Uh, Do you know what's coming next? I can't say yet, no. Okay. On that note of mystery, um, I would like to thank you enormously for a wonderfully uh, auto-stroke biographical uh, conversation and uh, for a, a, a very pleasurable encounter. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you all very much.